Good morning. As we continue to worship, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. The Gospel of Mark, the seventh chapter, starting in verse 24. As you found your place in God's Word, let's pray together, asking God to speak to our hearts this morning. Gracious God, give us humble and teachable obedient hearts this morning, that we may receive what you've revealed to us in and through your word, and that you, through the power of your spirit, would enable us to do what you have commanded. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You ever had a celebrity encounter before? I vividly remember the, the first celebrity encounter, and it was the celebrity encounter. I was middle schooler, 13 years old, a youth group trip. We made our way to Dallas, Texas, there in the Galleria Mall. I looked up along with my friends, and do you know who we saw? We saw Troy Aikman, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. He had his then-girlfriend with him, Lori Morgan. You remember Lori Morgan, the country music star? And so there in the mall was Troy Aikman. So we huddled up together, no pun intended, we huddled up together, uh, my friends and I, and we wondered to ourselves, do we leave him alone or do we go and and try to talk to him, and you probably could imagine what happened. We literally ambushed uh, Troy Aikman and Lori Morgan, and he was gracious. He signed autographs for us, but I could see he, he couldn't go anywhere without that happening. There was sort of this look in his eyes of, I've been caught. And, and I thought about that because it's rare for me to have a celebrity encounter. I don't have this whole litany of celebrities that Danielle and I, along with our family, have been able to encounter. But there have been these unique times where uh, I've seen someone who's a C-list, B-list, A-list uh, star athlete. And, and it's always sort of this awkward uh, moment. It's this place where you recognize the person and you wonder, do I leave them alone or do I uh, ask for their autograph? Do I ask for a selfie? Uh, the passage that we are looking at this morning is, is, a, is a passage that helps us think about what, what's the best approach. Not, not the best approach to a celebrity, do I ask for the autograph or not ask for the autograph, but the best approach to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How do we approach a holy God? How do we approach the infinite Son of God? Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 26 reveals how uh, one woman approached Jesus. Uh, approached Jesus in, in a time of his ministry where he was trying to escape the crowds, where he was trying to get away, to, to be away from people, to retreat from the demands of ministry. We Read of this in uh, verse 24 through 26. Read along with me. And from there he, being Jesus, arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Didn't want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, Seraphonician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. The context of the story is Jesus embroiled with controversy, embroiled in controversy with the Pharisees. He retreats to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, now, I think it's important, while he's going to rest and recruit, recoup there, th this was in every way off the beaten path. Uh, especially for a first century Jew, Tyre was 
a, a place w w with a bad reputation. It was a place where no self-respecting Jew would go to. It, it was a place that was the hometown of Jezebel. Uh, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, said of Tyre that they were the bitterest of enemies to the Israelites. It wasn't just dislike for the residents of Tyre. It was utter disdain. So this is much deeper than a Friday Night Lights sort of uh, crosstown rivalry here. This is something that, that went into the very fabric of a Israelite, the disdain for Tyre here. And so when Jesus goes to this city, he goes, uh, yes, to retreat, but you need to understand there's nothing accidental about this. This is providential in every way because he is going and he is going to encounter, and he knows he's going to encounter this woman who has a desperate need. Uh, her daughter has a, a, a demon. She's possessed by an evil spirit, and her only hope is going to be the work of Jesus. So that's her first strike, where she's from. The second strike is that culturally, the Bible tells us she's a Greek. She's a Gentile that ethnically she's a Syrophoenician here. That means that she has a heritage from uh, the Canaanites. So you can go back to the Old Testament and see the Canaanites and the Israelites and their, their rivalry and the disdain and the hatred that they have for one another. So there's, there's deep animosity uh, in this region. And, and the person that Jesus is talking to here in the minds of the disciples and the minds of Jewish contemporaries is a person who is utterly impure. She would have been a person in the mind of any other rabbi who was just not worthy of God's love. And so Jesus comes to her town, most likely encounters her intentionally. I know she comes to him, but obviously he providentially knows that she's probably never going to encounter him in Galilee, probably never going to encounter him in Jerusalem. And it's just a reminder that we just need to shout from the rooftops that God's love knows no boundaries. God's love knows no boundaries. There's no house, there's no street, there's no village, there's no town, there's no uh, city, there's no nation, that no matter political allegiances, no matter religious views or ethnicities, that is off limits to the love and the grace of God. Jesus goes to Tyre. He's going to encounter this woman who, from all standpoints of that first century religious viewpoint, would have been off limits to the grace and the love of God. But it's just a reminder that grace, God's grace, is available to all. And so this woman, without invitation, without reservation, without hesitation, she goes and she knocks on the door of the very house that Jesus is retreating to. She falls at the feet of Jesus and begs him to drive this demon out of her daughter. Now, in the original language of the New Testament, that word that is translated begged is, is a word that literally means that she kept on begging. In Matthew's gospel, we have a parallel account, and the disciples literally hush her in the account. She, she is so insistent, so persistent, that they're saying, okay, that's enough. So it gives us some idea of the, of the persistence of her faith. I mean, she comes before Jesus begging him to do what only he can do. And Jesus' response, well, at first glance when we read it, 
It's confounding. Uh, read with me in verse 27 and 28 of Mark chapter 7. And he said to her, Jesus said to her, Let the little children be fed first. Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, did you, did you read that right? Did, did you understand what Jesus just said? Here, here's this desperate woman coming, begging Jesus, and Jesus responds by calling her a dog. Our first century understanding of Jesus, or our, our understanding of Jesus right now, is ultimately that he's this the kind of this first century sandal wearing Mr. Rogers. And in our mind, we cannot imagine how in the word world is he going to have a conversation with her using that type of, of language here. Now, it's helpful for us to understand what's going on here. It's helpful for us to understand the historical context because if we're just reading this removed from the historical context of that first century, we're going to misunderstand the entire encounter here and just think that Jesus is being derogatory and is just being mean to this woman, but that's not the case. Jews in Jesus' day, Jews in Jesus' day would call Gentiles, would call a resident from Tyre, pagan, but more than that, they would call them a dog as an insult. And I know that's hard for us to believe, especially in the last 10 weeks or so, everybody's out walking their dogs. I mean, dogs are just another member of most people's families here, and there's a privileged place to have a dog in your family, but not so in that first century world. Dogs, for the most part, not, not totally, but for the most part, were considered unclean, despicable, wild. And so Jesus in that first century world would have certainly understood that people would have considered her and would have cast an insult to her by calling her a dog. Now, is that what Jesus is doing? Not so fast. Uh, we, we, we don't need to understand this as Jesus just following the custom of the day. Actually, he takes that custom and he's going to twist it in this unique way. He uses a word, again, in the original language in the New Testament, that doesn't just mean dog. It's a unique word. It's a word, if we're translating it, that could, could actually be translated puppy. It, small dog, a, a dog that you would have in your house. And what we begin to understand is, is that he's not insulting her. He, he's actually twisting the custom and he's engaging her. Now we can't see this because we're not there hearing it. But I, but I along with uh, so many scholars that have, have reflected upon this passage, they say that if you could be there, if you could have been there, and you, you could have heard the tone of Jesus' voice, if you could have seen the twinkle in his eye, you'd begin to see that Jesus is, is playfully bantering with her. He, he, he takes that custom and he twists it on its head, and it's not lost on her. I mean, you see how she responds. She says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What this woman realizes is that Jesus is engaging her in this parable of sorts. And she immediately realizes the meaning. Jesus' ministry, she understands, is first and foremost to God's chosen people in this parable they are the children. But she also realizes the crumbs off the table of the nation of Israel can be received by gratitude for the, by, by the Gentiles, like, like herself and like her 
daughter who is possessed by a demon. So she is thoroughly biblical in her understanding. I mean, she, she understands that all nations are going to be blessed through Israel, as Israel is called to be a blessing to all. And so as Jesus comes to minister to his people, as he comes as a first century Jew, she engages in a, a fully robust understanding of Jesus' priority and his mission to his people as a Jew. But she also realizes, she, she realizes that that blessing, that ministry, it would extend even to her as the crumbs upon the table would extend to a household puppy. So Jesus commends her faith. He heals her daughter in that very moment of this powerful encounter that we read in verse 29 and 30. And he said to her, reading along in your copy of God's word, for this statement, may you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. This is an amazing story. And it's amazing on so many fronts. It's an amazing story because Jesus doesn't go to the daughter. He heals her right there. It's amazing because this Gentile pagan woman is actually the first person in Mark's gospel who understands a parable of Jesus without Jesus having to further explain it. She is one who shows robust faith, robust understanding in the person of Jesus. Jesus commends her faith, heals her daughter. It isn't the disciples who understand the parables. They're constantly saying, we don't get it. Help us understand. It isn't the Pharisees. They're consistently confounded by Jesus' teaching. But here is this woman who from all understanding of that first century world would be the last person to understand what Jesus is talking about. But she's the first person to understand. So she's a model. She's a model for us to see how do we approach the infinite Son of God. Well, how does she do it? Well, she did it uh, with humility, doesn't she? Uh, she? She does it with humility. And, and so we are called, we approach Jesus humbly. She humbles herself. She doesn't come complaining about God's covenant with the Israelites. She doesn't come complaining. Uh, she realizes her place and she humbly asks with gratitude for the crumbs from the table. And she understands that these crumbs have the power to heal her daughter. She doesn't come with the spiritual resume to try to impress Jesus with all the things that she has done. No, she, she has nothing. From a religious standpoint, she comes with completely empty hands. In so many ways, I, I think when we're reading Matthew's gospel and we have the Sermon on the Mount and it starts with the Beatitudes and we read, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who is the portrait of, of the poor in spirit? It, it's this mother. It's this encounter here. And boy, we need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded of her posture before Jesus. Uh, she models for us what at times can be something that, that we fail to, to live in as Christians. We can misunderstand the Christian life. Even if we're not followers of Jesus, we can grossly misunderstand the Christian life and we can think uh, that God owes us something. We can think that God owes us something. I've done this for you, God. 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 
And it's this sort of our way of, of making deposits. And we can at times treat Jesus like an ATM machine and where we, we put in our pen and we expect to, to cash out when we need him. And so we can think based upon what we've done, God has to pay up. He has to, when we ask for a withdrawal, he has to help us because he owes us. He has to guide us. He has to heal us. He has to fix this situation because we deserve his intervention. And this woman, this woman's model of faith reminds us that we, we bring nothing to the table. We cannot and we do not stand before God on the basis of our dignity, on the basis of our rights, on the basis of our moral record, on the basis of what we've been through, what we've suffered in life, that that, that uh, merits God's attention to us. Jesus doesn't owe her anything, and he doesn't owe us anything. So when we approach the throne of God, we approach the throne of God with humility, understanding that everything that we receive from God is sheer grace. We receive it with gratitude because we understand there is nothing that we come before the table of God uh, with, with any sense of merit. It's all grace, all gift. So we approach the throne of God uh, with humility. But also, and, and finally this morning, I, I want you to see that we approach Jesus expectantly. This is the flip side of this. Uh, we, we can be prideful when we come to God and we demand Him to do things in our lives. We, we can be prideful when we come to God and say, you owe us this. But, but you know the flip side of pride? The flip side of pride is when we fail to ask God to intervene. And notice what she models for us here. Here is this woman who, again, without hesitation, without reservation, she knocks on the door and she earnestly begs him to heal. She, she expectantly beseeches God in this moment here. And, and I think this is important for us to understand because there can be the temptation for you and for me, I think for all of us, to fail to ask God to intervene. And even when we pray, we pray sort of with our fingers crossed behind our back. We don't expect God at times to actually answer our prayer. So we go through the motions, but it isn't with this heartfelt begging God to, to move. And in a global pandemic, if, if there's anything that it can do, it can bring this temptation out in my life. And I would think it might could bring this temptation out in, in your life here when, when we're backed into a corner where circumstances are difficult and we don't know what's before us, there can be the temptation to spend a whole lot of time asking, what do we need to do to face this challenge? Making your list and you're checking it twice and you're buying this and you're getting this ready and doing this and doing that. And it can be all about me and I and what I need to do to get through this. And if we're not careful, we can realize that when we're backed into a corner, it draws out that self-preservation temptation in your life and in my life. It shows that, that we really aren't comfortable leaning on God, but we would really rather lean on our own understanding. 
we would really rather lean on what we need to do. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a lot of things that we need to do and not uh, need to stop doing. Of, of course, there's human responsibility in this. Of course, there's human agency in this. But what I'm talking about here is that when we are in binds, oftentimes we can think that only I am the solution to what needs to happen here. And prayer is a reminder that we're not the solution. Prayer is the reminder that we are, we are human creatures in need of an eternal God to move and to work in our lives. And so when we're prayerless, it really is a sign of pridefulness, isn't it? When we're prayerless, it's a sign of, of human pride. She begs Jesus to intervene in its heartfelt, knee-aching prayer to Jesus. And I just want to encourage, I want to encourage myself in the midst of this to be bold and to be expectant. I want to encourage you to be bold and expectant in, in beseeching a holy God and in, in turning to him in the midst and, and praying for God to unite our divided nation. Praying for God to, to heal the sick and the vulnerable. Praying for God to give guidance to, to men and women who are on the front lines of, of providing health care and on the front lines of, of seeking uh, for solutions. I want to I pray for guidance for churches and, and our church. I want to pray, pray boldly and expectantly that God would use this pandemic not as just a pause in, in our busy lives, but I want to pray that God would use this pandemic to draw people to Him. And I want to pray in, in that sense of boldness and expectancy like this woman who expectantly uh, came before Jesus asking Him to move. Now, there are challenging times before us. And, and in the midst of challenging times, you know what can occur is that we, we can be tempted to prayerlessness. And prayer is the spiritual fuel for our journey. And there's some of us 10 weeks into this, if we're going to be honest, we're running on spiritual fumes. We're running on spiritual fumes. And that can happen in my life, that can happen in your life. And so here's just a call. It's, it's a call back to a posture of dependency. It's a call back to your knees asking God to move in your own individual life, in your family, to, to move in our nation. Prayerlessness, I, I think one of the ways I just want to end this sermon is just to say, prayerlessness is saying to God, I've got this. I've got this. I can take care of this. Raising our boys, one of the things that we don't hear them say as much as we used to, but when they were really little, one of the most frequent phrases that Danielle and I would hear our boys say is, is this phrase, let me do it. Let me do it. Daddy, let me do it. Mom, let me do it. We're putting them in the car seat. Some of you have children and you're, you're doing this now and you're, you're helping them get all the buckles buckled and get you know, snugly into the car seat. And what are they saying? Let me do it. Let me do it. You open up a box of cookies, let me open it, let me open it, let me do it, let me do it. Getting them ready in the morning, they're getting dressed, let me do it, let me do it. And I think in so many respects, our posture is a posture to say to God, let me do it, let me do it. 
That's our, that's our human sinful default. Let me handle this. Let me do it. And prayer is saying to God, I can't do this on my own. I need thee. Oh, how I need thee. Every hour I need thee. I pray that your posture this morning is a posture of dependency. I pray as you approach the throne of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, I pray that you're, you're approaching him with humility and you're approaching him with expectancy. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. We thank you for your word and we, we confess to you that we are often tempted to self-sufficiency. We're often tempted to say, let me do it. So today is a day that we realize that we come before you with open hands. All that we receive from you is gift. All that we receive from you is by sheer grace. And as we come before you, we come before you through the power of the Holy Spirit with boldness and expectancy, knowing that you are a powerful God who invites us to depend upon you in this posture of prayer. Lord, we confess our temptation. We confess our temptation to prayerlessness. We confess our temptation to look all around us for the solutions, for the answers. May this be a day, may this be a week that we turn our eyes to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior Jesus. Amen.